Welcome to the Sprocket Podcast, where we are simplifying the good life. I'm Guthrie Straw. And I'm Aaron Flores, broadcasting from the People's Republican Port of Portland, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. We are the show that brings you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally with a global perspective and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. Covering bicycling, trains, and transit, adventures, and life hacks, and today, our autonomous vehicle future. That's right. We've got Chris Smith here in the studio with us this evening. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. And um, we will be getting into talk about levels of automation, other things related to Portland, and all that is transit-oriented here soon. Uh, But before we do so, let's catch up on the week. How yeah. has your week gone, Eric? Well, Petalpalooza is in full swing now. That it is. Yeah, we got uh, got a few rides under our belt here. Mm-hmm. I, was... I, I'm talking about myself in the plural. I don't oh, know why. Okay. <laughs> we could we also mean your bicycles as well? Yes. So yes. just the, the family of, of cycling. <laughs> um, I got my bike blessed. Well, Ooh. sorry, I got our bike blessed at the one Anna and I built together. Um, the fat bike. Yeah, that was nice. Went to the the bike blessing. Chris was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did uh, how did the event go? Good. You know, it's kind of what you expect. I actually never went to previous bike blessings. Okay. Was yeah. it kind of what you expected, or were there a couple of curveballs in the experience as well? It was pretty much what I expected. I don't know. Have you ever been to the ones in the past? Chris? I did. I used to go to the ones at, at St. Mary's, uh, but I think the the deacon who used to run that has moved on, so they didn't do it last year. I was glad to see somebody pick it up this year. Um, this was the first one I've been to where the officiant had blue hair. I'll yeah. say that. <laughs> I thought that was kind of neat. <laughs> Very fitting, I thought. Yes. How many bikes were blessed? Ah, that's a couple dozen. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a pretty good number there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ranger Tom was there. Okay. He rented a Bachfeets from Clever Cycle. Nice. And, nice. Um, his son. I hope I don't screw the name up. Declan. Uh, it was his first ride in the Bachfeets. Ooh. And his first ride on a bicycle. Okay. How totally. was Declan digging it there? He seemed to. He yeah. seemed to enjoy it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. One of those, one of those, like good, good for now, and then you try to like not force Declan to do so later in life, <laughs> right? So right. that, so that secretly and subtly, Declan might take up the torch of his own. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Who knows a future, a future bike blessing in the works there. <laughs> what else did you uh, get out for? Uh, grilled by bike was Saturday. Yeah. We got we got a lot of rain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was really rainy here on yeah, Saturday. Yesterday I, I felt like and Saturday, yeah. It, it was almost as if spring was like, oh, hey, I'm not done yet. <laughs> but, you know, I was recalling last year it was it was more rainy in the beginning of June. Okay. Um, so I think we're doing all right. Yeah. Uh, only, only, what, one or two state of emergencies for drought already declared in Oregon? Oh. As of, as of two weeks ago, <laughs> <Yeah>. I guess. <laughs> so... Maybe we shouldn't complain about the rain too much, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I always tell folks, like, you, you know, get it while you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There will be a time yeah. that you wish that it was raining. <laughs> Good boy. Uh, yeah, we met at Lads around, I want to say, two-ish, okay. maybe three-ish. Um, and because, of, like, it, it was kind of nice, we set up the grills and everything. Um 
Iverson brought a foosball table by bike. Nice. Yeah. Like was it like integrated into the size. grill or, uh, or no, separate no. <laughs> apparatus? It was, it was integrated onto a trailer, okay. which I think was still a feat yeah. of engineering on oh, its own. Oh, for sure. Uh, but uh, the rain was just bad enough that we all just kind of hung out at mm-hmm. lads under tarps and whatnot until yeah. we got a break. And that was like maybe five o'clock. Mm-hmm. Which I'm imagining, I don't know for sure, but possibly we ended up not doing one of the stops okay. and, and just went straight to the end stop. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so even the hardcore, or, or I guess not hardcore, but the rain, the rain, the rain had a dampering effect, so to say. Uh, so to so to speak, I think mm-hmm. just just more or less uh, realizing that maybe uh, having having uh, a couple more stops and then. You know, also maybe waiting for another three hours for the rain to break again. Yeah. yeah. You know, is maybe has some logistical issues. Yeah, definitely. I, I noticed that too because I was looking to go on a ride for Saturday night and I was looking at the calendar and I was like, oh, th- this was canceled. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Everybody's like, yeah, we might hang out at Donnie's and like eat some food. Oh, but right, we probably, right. <laughs> probably won't go on the, the, um, the drag races for tonight. Yeah. So um, that, that was okay, though. I, I ended up having a chance to get out and ride a section of the Springwater corridor that I haven't in a while. Oh, so cool. I, I, rain doesn't bother me too much and it's that much funner when you're kind of re-exploring a section of Portland you haven't been to in a while. Oh, so yeah. that's always a nice experience there. Right on. I led my first pedal Palooza ride ever, um, this week. Okay. I, I sort of retroactively... I, was that on the calendar? On um, It's not. It didn't make the print calendar. Oh, okay. I was like, because I saw photos, and then when I went to pick up beer at the Beer Mongers, Sean was like, yeah, Aaron was here yesterday. And I was like, I didn't see. What? What's up? Yeah, cool. I I put it on, on the the online calendar, um, and... Okay. Maybe, maybe it, it was the day before, or maybe two days before. Oh. It yeah. was... I called it the last day of school um, beer ride. Okay. I think that's what I called it. Um, and it was already something that a bunch of us uh, that all at work were planning on doing anyways, was just riding down Vancouver. Yeah. And then eventually hitting the beer mongers on Southeast Division and 12th. Spe- and speaking of yes, the beer mongers. <laughs> why don't we? Why don't we? <sighs> yes. What what are you having over there, Aaron? <laughs> I got me a Lacroix, orange, okay. which is uh, not a flavor I, I partake in very okay. often. But not a flavor that is necessarily not to be partaken in either. No, no, I uh, I can't have oranges. Mm-hmm. So generally, anything orange flavored, I just don't really. It doesn't appeal to me okay. per se. Okay, but I like this. Yay for orange! And what are you having over there, Chris? Right. We have a, uh, a base camp Hellas. Excellent. And I, I, too, am sharing a base camp Hellas as well. I was actually at base camp today, and they were saying that that's their most popular beer, or at least one person was. Oh, and really? I, I kind of was surprised because I thought IPA would outsell, but I might have also misheard and that it might have been that person's most favorite or popular <laughs> beer. So I'll, I'll have to double back with them on that. But uh, either way, the hop in the pool sort of, other than Saturday, starts to feel like that season. Yeah. For um, the ride, in terms of your meeting location, were you able to oh, find yeah. a good spot to not really impinge on the on the bus facilities there too much? Oh, 
Well, I just because uh, Farragut Park is not very far. Okay. Um. Yeah, it was. Isn't that a great name? It, yes, I really like that park. Farragut. Yeah. Yeah. I should probably uh, know where it comes from, but I don't. I don't either. It reminds me of like a sailing ship for some reason. I think there's a famous Admiral Farragut. Okay. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Okay. Like U.S. Navy sort of? I think so. Interesting. It just bring it brings um, Horatio Hornblower to mind, uh, which, which is the series that I will every now and then go back and watch because it's great Navy stuff, but uh, a little bit long sometimes as well. Yeah. In the original Star Trek, I think there was a USS Farragut as oh, part okay. of Starfleet. Nice. Okay. Booyah. I'll take it. We should have uh, more randomly named parks after. Well, maybe we should. But anyway, I'll take it. Farragut, uh, to to the admiral. Thanks, and uh, thanks for letting us use your park. Yes. Cheers. <laughs> I actually, I, I began to feel slightly guilty that people had showed up just for that ride, just because um, f- that park is so far north mm-hmm. and so out of most people's way that you know isn't normally. Mm-hmm. That like I don't know it just part of me was like oh man they came out just for this and all we're gonna do is ride down to but also to the beer mongers you weren't like pulling the wool over anyone either no I it's like we we'll go here we do this and then yep, we do this I mentioned <laughs> or I said exactly what we were gonna do yeah so, so the the real question is did you pre ride <clears throat> did did you follow the ride I, later I calendar? will say I will say I pre ride kind of. <laughs> In that I take that stretch every day to my house. So you ultra pre rode it. And then maybe I, I pre rode most of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I just trusted that the rest of it would be okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, we I'd ended up legit. taking the waterfront. Uh, oh, yeah. You know. And uh, for, for folks not in Portland right now, we have a little bit going on in the waterfront this weekend as well. Oh, yes. How did you, how did you deal with Fleet Week there? Well, we were on the east side. Sorry, oh, okay. we di- I didn't take the wa- sorry two That's different. Okay. Sorry, two different words. I took the Esplanade, <laughs> not uh, the waterfront, which is on a waterfront. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. So I, we stayed on the east side. Okay. Which gotcha. yeah, um, sort of skirted by any of that. Mm-hmm. It was uh, Jane and I were going into work early this morning, and she she was heading in at her usual time, but. As, as often happens when I try to ride in with her, I end up delaying the crew. And so oh. with that, we were finally getting out the door. She was feeling a bit of that stress for getting into work. And fortunately for us, it wouldn't have mattered because as we started to roll down Broadway, just at that moment, we turned the corner, the lift gates for crossing. Oh, well, no. well, it was good. It was good, actually, because they just started going up. And so had we been... Uh, and what I mean by that is the gates that allow you to like cycle back through. Oh, and so okay. had we been in any earlier, we would have just you, sat there basically. Right, right. So I, I kind of was like secretly proud that I made us late, but also like <laughs> not, not trying to make a habit out of it by any means. <laughs> no, cause no. it's not, not every week that you get fleet week heading out of town by about eight in the morning. No, or... What's interesting. And I didn't, I didn't remember this from last year. I just learned this last year. Okay. Then forgot about it until this year. When one of those ships goes under a bridge, regardless of whether or not there's a drawbridge, they close that bridge mm-hmm. anyway. 
just um, in case. I yeah, I'm sure it's like security. I mean, they're military. Yeah, I got ships. caught in the in the bridge list this morning as one of the Coast Guard vessels was going out, mm-hmm. and uh, and the Portland police were there, and I you know I assume checking to make sure nobody has a rocket launcher in their penure. Pen- pen- uh, <laughs> but they, they did a nice thing. As long as they were there, they worked the line and gave people. Bike registration info. Oh, really? It was part of their theft avoidance mission. So I thought that was a nice combination. Do you know, like, where that originated out of? Was that sort of part of the PPB, um, like, bike theft task force? I'm sure it must be. Okay. Interesting. That's that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got a captive audience. Right, exactly. (laughs) There were a couple of folks who, you know, last year I think I hit it even earlier and you end up trying to, like, tag yourself back bridges and so that game you play where it's like well if i go to the steel i think i can do it and then it's like oh, oh nope just getting yeah. the burnsides up too <laughs> but if i hit the morrison oh okay well now the canadian vessel is trying to get through the morrison that so it's like you end up at the telecom by the time you could have just stayed <laughs> at the broadway and just waited it out but i think that's a game we all play um one of my favorite articles try playing that in a bus sometime oh i'll bet yeah, yeah. like with with a with a true schedule and a lot of people to manage in between <laughs> yep I remember my, my favorite uh, sort of quote that I read from one of the lift operators was what they get to do when nine o'clock rolls around and you have employers calling like Hawthorne Bridge and being like, was it really up or was it just my employee lying to me? Oh. <laughs> and uh, in the article, you know, sort of sort of with a grin, I think they said, well, I don't lie. <laughs> so, if, if you know, in Portland, I think being caught by the bridge especially that east to west side effect it happens to all of us uh but just be truthful if it if it's actually a bridge right. <laughs> uh, and, and don't play your cards if uh if it's not but as a watercraft or as somebody uh piloting a watercraft if i read it correctly you don't necessarily have to be of a certain height to get the drawbridge really yes you so long as you follow the protocol and like call it in, mm-hmm. call your request in and in the right protocol or whatever, okay. like you could conceivably be in a canoe. Wow. <laughs> Has anyone ever tried? That? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't own a watercraft. I, I feel like we get so, into these random subjects that need tests. Right. No, this was like a doctor. No thing, okay. which is like that, you know, not quite advice column okay. in our in our weekly newspaper. Well, and like half of me wants to believe that even if that weren't the case, they would just kind of humor that person and maybe go along with it. <laughs> like, I mean, you're stuck, you're stuck in the tower. That you, that's what you're doing for the day. You might as well, <laughs> might as well give it a shot there. Um, but I'm not a bridge operator, so I won't speak on their behalf. Um, Chris, it's a pleasure to have you in this afternoon or this this evening. Um, we we have a lot to talk about for today and excited to get into it. But before we do so, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you do and sort of what, what you're excited to talk about for the afternoon. Uh, well, probably the, the main thing people know me for right now is that I'm vice chair of the Planning and Sustainability Commission here in Portland. So I get to weigh in on a variety of land use and sustainability matters before they go to city council. Okay. Uh, but I've been a, you know, I'll say active transportation advocate uh, for a number of years here in Portland, mm-hmm. going back to my neighborhood association days. I have a day job in technology. Mm-hmm. And you were involved in the streetcar as well? I'm on the board of directors of Portland Streetcar. Okay. Yep. Awesome. And so with that, you've had a chance to see Portland in its various facets over, over a very long period of time, mm-hmm. too. So you bring a lot of that experience to the table of, of sort of what works, what hasn't worked, what's, what sort of works, and uh, everything in between. Been watching Portland develop for about 20 years now. Yeah. And then uh, in terms of the topics you sent in, I, I really like these because I think I think we sort of touched on them in the past, but we haven't 
like maybe fully gotten into the meat or the the depth of those topics. Um, you were talking a little bit about levels of automation, and I was curious, sort of, what you meant by that. So there's actually a formal definition for different levels of vehicle automation, and I brought along the yes. the, the SAE, which I think is <laughs> Society it. of Automotive Engineers definition. So let me just walk through it. It's level zero through five. Okay. Uh, level zero is automated system issues, warnings that may momentarily intervene, but no sustained vehicle control. So I think of this is like my partner has a Subaru and uh, there's a little light in the side view mirrors that will tell you when a vehicle's coming along. So, you, you know, you kind of have a blind spot indicator. So I think that's an example of level zero. And I think there are lots of level zero examples around. Okay. Um, level one, uh, it's called hands-on and the idea is the driver and the vehicle are sort of sharing control. So uh, a good example is probably these new automatic parking systems where for you know, those of us who struggle with parallel parking, you can just let the car do it for you. Okay. So the car like will the actually turn the, steering, yeah, turn the steering wheel and wedge you into the parking space. Mm-hmm. Um, level two, um, hands off. Uh, and that's where the automated vehicle can or the automation can take full control of the vehicle, but the driver is still expected to be alert and available and paying attention. So I think the, uh, the Tesla autopilot stuff uh, probably okay. fits this category. Um, level three is eyes off. So this is the idea that the driver doesn't have to pay attention. And this is what you're seeing a lot of the companies start testing now. So, you know, you have Uber and Google and mm-hmm. other people testing mm-hmm. AVs in different places. And, and, this, and we're talking cars specifically in terms of yeah. forms of automation. Well, um, Trucks as well. We'll get into that a little bit. There's lots of opportunities in freight. Um, And I'll be honest, level three scares the hell out of me because the idea is that the driver doesn't have to be paying attention, but is supposed to be able to intervene if something goes wrong. Mm. Uh, And I think that we'll we'll talk a little bit later about the fatality in Arizona, but I think a lot of lessons from that. That sounds like a contradiction in a way. Yeah, I I think it is. Yeah. If I were fully in charge, I would not allow level three in the streets mm-hmm. of Portland. Because <laughs> the theory would be that fully in charge means you're controlling the right. vehicle. I mean, okay. Yeah, we already know how many flaws human drivers have, right? Now, then take a human driver and say, oh, you don't really have to pay attention. And just, <laughs> there's this semi-reliable technology over here that's going to do things for you. But yeah, keep an eye out just in case. And so, so imagine lev- all the things that could go wrong in that scenario. A, a level three on an Oregon driver's <laughs> test would be like, here, answer the first 10 questions. We'll take care of the other 60. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Uh, and then level four uh, is where you're no longer requiring the driver to uh, to pay attention, but they're May still there may be limits on that, so maybe it only works on freeways, but not urban streets, or you know maybe if the car has a problem, it pulls over and then the human driver takes over, but you don't have that, uh, you know that expectation that the human can intervene, mm-hmm. uh, or even you could have a backup driver who's, you know, in a facility somewhere. Now, in India, with a joystick, who could take over the car remotely? Uh, you know, a lot of different ways you can make that happen. And then level five is the full automation. You know, you're just sealed in the pod with no controls, and okay. uh, the car is going to take you somewhere. Um, so we're we're marching our way through that. And, you know, we're sort of edging up on level three right now, okay. uh, which I think is kind of that uncanny valley mm. <laughs> part where you know it gets pretty scary, and then it gets better on the other side. Interesting. So there, so there is sort of a thought within circles that. The, the tricky phase would be three, but that four or five are, in some senses, more desirable? Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, you particularly want to get into safety. I think we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, 
So the, the the paradigm that people talk about, and this goes back to a blog post that Robin Chase, who's the the woman who founded um, Zipcar way back when, one of the the car sharing pioneers, wrote um, that that talks about you know the utopia or the dystopia of automated vehicles. So the dystopia, if you can imagine, is if we just followed the kind of vehicle ownership patterns we have now. So you you know just like you you own a car now, you own an automated vehicle. It takes you to work. It takes you to the grocery store. Uh, but then perhaps, you know, while you're at work, it drives around and run errands or mm-hmm. just drives around because you don't want to pay for parking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we would wind up getting a lot more vehicle miles, which is the, you know, vehicle miles travel is the basic metric we use of uh, how well or often the, you know, the street system is used. So suddenly you got vehicle miles going way up with no real beneficial travel happening for actual people. Um, so that would, would be the nightmare scenario. Um, the more optimistic scenario, which still has problems that we'll talk about, is the idea that automated vehicles would be collectively owned and run as fleets by some kind of private entity, mm-hmm. whether you have an Uber or Lyft or somebody like that, who's basically in the business of providing transportation. Um, and the big, big benefit that you get there is then they're shared, of course, so you you call up a vehicle when you need it the way you would call a Lyft today. Mm. Uh and big win there is the demand for parking goes way down because you're not parking. These vehicles are always traveling around, mm-hmm. but they're uh, always purposeful in that travel. Well, that, that brings in the idea of the, the zero occupancy vehicle, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. what happens in the period when they don't have a passenger and they're cruising around looking for one, right? So now you've got these, you know, we have typically talked about the single occupancy, single occupancy vehicle as the, the bottom of the priority list for transportation. Well, now we've got one below that. We've got the zero occupancy vehicle mm. uh, that, that's even less useful to the uh, transportation yes. <laughs> system. So we want to make sure that we have you know, incentives in place so that those vehicles are empty as little as possible. And ideally, we'd like them to have multiple passengers. Okay. Uh, so the idea of you know, be the equivalent of Uber Pool or Lyft Line where you're arranging it so a vehicle can pick up multiple people while it's going from point A to point B and uh, more efficiently deliver people. So, okay. Um, but even in that scenario, where we've got the shared vehicles, which is way better than the private ownership scenario, uh, we're still likely to see more driving, paradoxically. And the reason is basic economics. So if you think about the cost of driving, you really have two costs you're investing in driving, right? You have the dollars you're paying to operate the vehicle, own and operate the vehicle, maintain it, and you have your time that you're spending driving, right? So when you're you know, when you're you're stuck on that bridge lift in your car and you're pounding the steering wheel and cursing, <laughs> you know that's time you're investing that you value highly and you're not getting anything out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so with automated vehicles, both of those are going to look cheaper. So, you know, personally owning an automobile is probably one of the least economically efficient things you can do because 98 percent of the time it's sitting parked somewhere, right? So True. in terms of how you invest your capital dollars, not a great use of capital. When these are owned and operated in fleets. They'll get way more efficient. Uh, and some estimates have said that the actual costs of maintaining and operating the vehicles could be half what it is for a privately owned car. So Interesting. imagine that the, the dollar cost of driving drops in half. Well, we know from economics, if there's a demand for something and the cost goes down, what happens? You get more of it, yep. right? So suddenly we have more driving. Um, then the other side of that equation, of course, is congestion. You know, when you're spending your time sitting in traffic, well... If you're now in traffic and you're not pounding the steering wheel, you're on your iPhone checking your email or watching Netflix or taking a nap, that time doesn't feel very costly, right? Hmm. So people will probably be willing to tolerate 
longer commutes than they are when they're driving and frustrated because they're not moving anywhere. Okay. Which means that people may be more tempted to live further from where they work. So it would counteract a lot of the planning we've done to try and get people to live close to where they work and basically yeah. you know, accomplish the things in their lives with, with less miles traveled. Okay. Um, oh, so, my gosh. It's like the revitalization of suburban America. That's right. Yep. Sprawl, you know, oh, sprawl wow. squared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sprawl squared. I like that. You, you've got a copyright, right? <laughs> I don't think I've written that one down before. I don't okay. think I know. Well, you heard it here first. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. We're going to have to have policy solutions for that, and I'll come back around to some of those. I think the other big factor we want to think about is safety. Uh, and you know, as I said, in the short term, I'm really worried about level three, and, and I thought it might be useful to talk about what happened in Arizona. And I don't know if people are, are familiar with this. But, yeah, fill us in. Um, there was, uh, I think it was about two months ago now, there was a fatality uh, where an automated vehicle being tested by Uber uh, struck a woman who was walking a bicycle across, um, I don't know if it's an arterial or a parkway. It had a big uh, median in the center, uh, fairly high-speed road. It was a 45-mile-an-hour speed limit. Uh, and if you watch the, the dashboard video, it literally looks like she comes out of nowhere. But, in fact, when you go back and diagram it, um, you know, she it wasn't a well-lighted area, but she was crossing two lanes, and the car was in the second lane. Um, okay. She was not in a crosswalk. It was between crosswalks. Again, you know, we can always look at the infrastructure for these things, right? So you had a fast road where it was 360 feet between marked crossings. People tend to take the shortcuts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But the car basically never stopped and just plowed right through her, and, and you know, she mm-hmm. died, I, I think, fairly instantly. Um, Whereas in many manned vehicles or, or – uh, yeah, in vehicles where somebody's at the wheel, there's at least a little bit of deceleration. Somebody pounds right. on the brakes, and there's some... And there was some. The, the yeah. report says the vehicle slowed down a little bit. Um, so, um, get to the notes here. So, the vehicle had cameras, you know, visual cameras. It had LIDAR, and it had radar. So, lots of lots of detection capabilities. Um it was going 43 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone, and according to the logs in the vehicle, the, the system registered the pedestrian six seconds before impact. Uh, it started to slow down because at impact, it was going 39 miles an hour. Um, at 1.3 seconds before impact, it determined that emergency braking was needed to mitigate a collision, but it didn't trigger it because emergency braking was disabled basically for passenger comfort. So, mm. you know, this whole oh. realm of you've got technology, but what do you turn on and what policies are you balancing, mm. right? Yeah. Um, so, in this case, you know, basically a feature that might have helped um, wasn't turned on. And was there, was that by, or I guess what the choice to do so was more for passenger convenience or? I think it, it's a policy choice of okay. whether that particular setting is turned on or not. Interesting. So, it's interesting. And it was also, um, you know, there was technology there available to alert the backup driver, uh, but it wasn't designed to be used in that particular situation. I don't quite understand why. Um, so, yeah, it, to me, that raises a whole range of things. You know, if, if we have the technologies that can intervene, you know, who's going to be making the choices of how they get, you know, what the settings are, what's enabled to do what, yep, how do right. we prioritize, yep. you know, comfort versus safety? Um, mm-hmm. 
and, and where are all those things going to get decided? Are private entities going to decide that? Is public policy going to mm-hmm. decide that? Uh, and that, that's been a, a big issue, too. I think Germany is looking to pass sort of the first regulation that decides, you know, in the in the case of this type of thing where, let's say, for example, there's an unpreventable fatality, whether mm-hmm. it's on the uh, exterior side or the interior side of that vehicle. That's something that a lot of, you know, mis- municipalities and also more generally, countries are looking at in terms of what what that standard should be. And the research on it's been a bit interesting in that people are very willing to say that they support a vehicle which would sacrifice the life of the driver, per se, Mm -hmm. and and save the pedestrian or save the more vulnerable road user. But the same percentage is um, basically drops right off when you actually put something out there and says, would you drive this car? Would would you accept this as as the norm? And so I I think um, Germany in particular is Uh is really chewing that one through and wrestling with it right now. So let me ask you, have you ever stepped into an Uber or Lyft and asked the driver what he would do in that situation? I have not. (laughs) Oh, man, if I ever take an Uber or Lyft... I'm right. going to totally ask that question. So now. I think in reality, most people will never think of that when they step into their automated taxi. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, it will be fascinating for the lawyers to argue. And I think some of this will get figured out through case law and liability lawsuits. Sure, sure, sure. Right. But it's an evolutionary process we're going to have to go through. And uh, yeah, as somebody who does government regulatory policy, surprise, surprise, I think there's probably a role for government to regulate here. Mm-hmm. But we're going to have to sort through all those things. Interesting. Now, in the long run, I think if we get the policies right, um, these vehicles should be a lot safer. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the in a situation like this, a human driver would probably say, "I never saw her." Right? Well, in this case, we know the lidar saw her. Right? So, I mean, that's yeah. As long as we have it programmed to do the right thing with the data it's got, uh, we should see uh, you know, a lowering of crashes. Basically, now there's a flip side to that, which is, will that get abused and therefore will be a temptation to soften the regulation. So imagine if you're a pedestrian who wants to jaywalk across the street and you know the car will see you and an automatic system mm-hmm. will apply the brakes. Are you going to think twice about stepping off the curve even if the car is going 20 miles no. an hour coming towards you? In fact, I would <laughs> I would count on it. I would almost I would almost purposefully you would look enjoy for it. A, right, exactly. <laughs> I would troll the crap out of these automated vehicles. Take, okay. take that assumption right to the bank. <laughs> and will that cause the policymakers to introduce some uncertainties? Or maybe two <laughs> percent of the time you don't have to stop when the pedestrian right. Oh god. Do you, do but you, it's <laughs> obvious that he's trolling you. You don't have to stop. <laughs> so so and in the in the in the folks that you've talked to or, or sort of discussed this with, do you get a sentiment of, of sort of if it should be cut or dry or should there be a little bit of this, a little bit of that, sort of a compromise between two extremes? Um, you know, in public policy, you always wind up making sausage. So I'm sure there will be compromise. I'm more worried about what level of government will decide this. Okay. So we saw some legislation in Congress that was basically – a big green light for the automated vehicle companies to go start testing things uh, didn't get fully adopted. Thankfully um, there's, you know, ODOT has a task force working at state level to set policy and uh, city of Portland has begun to set a little bit of policy on the TSP. We can get into that yeah. in a minute, but um, you know, as somebody who worries about the urban environment, I'd like to see local policy have a big level of control on this and, and, I think some good work that's going on is NACTO, the National Association of City Transportation 
officials, who has uh, which a is great mailing list, by the way, if you ever <laughs> want to read some policy stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, they're they're basically an association that was set up to be a complement or balance to NASHTO, which is the basically the organization of highway engineers um, who you know, don't care quite as much about issues that are dear to our hearts as, as <laughs> the NACTO folks do. So, so NACTO has been weighing in and doing a lot of uh, work at a national level to try and help set policy on this, and they have a pretty good set of policies uh, that, that they're evolving. Um, so you know, who decides is going to be a big part of this now. As I said, courts and liability lawyers are going to have their say before this is over. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the process of getting there is probably going to be somewhat painful. Okay. Um, so I think we all want to be paying attention, and yeah. So don't hesitate to call your congressman if you think it's appropriate. Uh, sure. Yeah. And and in the current system, if things went as they are currently, where would that policy decision lie? Would that right now be at the city level or the state level or or up higher? So I think it's up for grabs right now, okay. and uh, I've been an advocate of the city of Portland getting out there early because if you stake your grounds, you know, if the legislature does pass a law, it's not uncommon that they will grandfather local regulation mm. even at the same time that they don't let other local regulations get set. Um, so if you know, if, uh, an example is Washington County has uh, a sales tax, a property tax dedicated to relatively small property tax dedicated to transportation stuff. Um, the state doesn't let other jurisdictions do it, but because Washington County had already sort of built their system around it, they let them keep doing it. Okay. So I think if <clears throat> Portland stakes out a position early, I think there's a chance that it's more likely to survive a higher level of government trying to preempt things. And I think we, you know, no question the the automated vehicle companies will want to get this policy set as high as they can uh, because, you know, it, I think it's pretty clear if if you get to have one set of rules nationwide or one set of rules for state, that's easier to, easier environment to operate in than if you have to deal with you know fifty cities having different sets of rules, right? Um, and the, the TNCs, Uber and Lyft, are kind of dealing with that now. That you know we were talking about, Vancouver doesn't let them in. Right. Uh, other cities have been more you know, embracing. Uh, you know, if you were Uber, you want one set of rules let you do what you want to do everywhere, right? right? right. So you know there's going to be a push by the moneyed interests to drive it as high as I can, um, I think there, there's risk that urban policy doesn't fare very well in that because we know that uh, Congress, uh, because of the way that the districting works, rural interests tend to have a somewhat larger voice than urban interests yeah. do you know, mm-hmm. in a lot of things. So, you know, we just have to be engaged just like every other issue. <laughs> sure. And so so in that sense, as we, you know, it, it would appear are moving towards level three, do you think that the protections put in place by the urban growth boundary for Portland would play into or factor in terms of what, what you're what you're sort of predicting is the re um, sort of suburbanization of the theoretically Portland area? Or, or do you think there are other sort of checks and balances in place that might hold that? Uh, well, there are a couple. We can start to get into Portland's uh, policy. Yeah, or I that. guess more generally, but, too, if, if there's a good a good uh, parallel there. Yeah, I, the the land use system in, in Oregon puts some brakes on that because, you know, we just don't let you develop outside the urban growth boundary, right? Or only in very restricted ways. Um, but fundamentally, you know, to enable sprawl, you have to have governments being willing to invest in infrastructure. So you, you got to build roads, water lines, sewer lines. And I think in Oregon, we figured out it is very cost inefficient to go build those in a very dispersed way. So I think there's just some of the economics of running government will continue to, uh, enforce a, you know, a, a dense pattern that, that we started to evolve over the last 40 years or so. Okay. Uh, but this will 
introduce more pressure to, to go the other way. No questions on the politics. This will be another force in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we'll have to watch that. Um, in terms of what's happening here locally in Portland, um, you know, the, the city did in TSP, uh, the recent TSP update, adopt some policies around automated vehicles. We're one of the first cities to do that. Uh, so it can reference some of those, uh, which I had a little bit of hand in authoring. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we did is in uh, our what we call our transportation strategy, which is basically our modal ranking that says, you know, worry about pedestrians first, then people on bicycles, then transit, then shared vehicles, then, uh, you know, single occupancy vehicles was the way it was until recently. And we have uh, basically rewritten that bottom tier to say low or no occupancy vehicles and fossil fuel vehicles. Uh, non-transit vehicles so okay. basically if you're burning carbon or you have you know one or zero people you're you're at the bottom of the hierarchy mm-hmm. um but in addition to that um we've got a set of policies around avs and these are not regulation yet they're the policies that the city would use to build regulation on top of a sort of the justification for regulation so i will cherry so pick this a few is gems less from this law and more like Kind of a more like guidelines. When, when you're making law, these are the things to pay attention to. Okay. Mm. Um, so the first one is uh, prioritize connected automated vehicles that are fleet shared ownership. So the idea that we don't want lots of private privately owned AVs running around doing nothing useful. Uh, we want the fleets. Um, ensure that connected and automated vehicles improve travel time reliability and system efficiency by re- maintaining or reducing the number of vehicle trips reducing low-occupancy vehicle trips, paying for the use of an impact on Portland's transportation system. So mm-hmm. that's basically a license to charge tolls on automated vehicles at okay. some point. Uh, and it also says that, hey, we have these goals that you know, we are supposed to you know, maintain or reduce the number of trips. That's you know, fundamental to our comp plan. If, we, uh, if the number of vehicle trips grows at the rate of population by 2035, Portland will be a totally congested mess. Hmm. Um, so we've, we've got goals around that. We're basically saying, Hey, AVs, you don't get to change what those goals are. So you have to play nice in okay. the system. Um, and pricing will be a way to do that. So even though demand might rise, supply might stay the same. Well, the way you constrain supply is with pricing, right? Okay. So if, you know, if driving gets half as expensive dollar wise, you know, we, we could add charges to basically make up for that and keep the economics constant. That would be one approach to it. But I, I think we'll be more nuanced than that. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll probably charge more at peak hours than we do at off hours right and, and things like that. But, you know, we're, uh, we need government will need to intervene in order to maintain the goals, uh, you know, that we've, we've set for our society. Um, there's an issue about, you know, carbon emissions. So uh, I think on the upside, all the AV, uh, manufacturers seem to be pointing towards electric vehicles. So as long as we have a source of clean electricity, we're likely to see you know a, a green benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, it may help accelerate moving away from fossil fuel cars to electric cars. And, and just as a quick aside for Oregon residents, I think we're still being powered at about 35, 38% for the Boardman coal plant in Eastern Oregon. There's a lot of coal in our electricity. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. More, yep. more than one might realize. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. People are surprised by that. I think Everything is green hydro. It's not. <laughs> Some of it is. Not all of it. All right. Um, there's, a, there's an equity policy. So it basically says, you know, make the benefits of automobility available on an equitable basis to all segments of the community. So AVs should not be only for the rich. 
right? So mm-hmm. that's going to be tricky to figure out how to write regulation that, that has, causes that to happen. Has there been a discussion of a public option in terms of a roadmap for Portland going forward? Uh, not that I've heard so far. I mean, okay. it's, it's interesting. I mean, you get the same kind of arguments around municipal broadband, right? So free Wi-Fi for everybody. Sure. Um, and, I was um, thinking even with housing, you know, mm-hmm. trying to make housing more equitable, like using a parallel to right. automated vehicles. Yeah. So, I mean, it, yeah, the, the TNCs and the car sharing is a good example, I think, of yeah. missed opportunities. So I think everybody knows you can't get a car to go east of 82nd, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because as a private company, they made a choice that, you know, there, there wasn't going to be enough opportunity for them in the Outer East neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people in Outer East Portland that need that kind of flexibility that, you know, can't afford to own a car, would love to have, you know, occasional access to a car. Yeah, there, there are ways the city could have played that. So, you know, one of the things that the car share companies have is they have this sort of universal parking permit. So they can park at any meter. They can park in any uh, permit district. It basically, a, you know, one size get out of jail free for all parking okay. requirements in the city of Portland. Um, and they pay like $1,000 a year per vehicle hmm. to get that. Well, and they're just kind of that built that into the cost. Yeah. But, you know, the city traffic engineer had to issue that permit. Mm-hmm. He could have said, "You can only get this permit if you're going to operate everywhere in the city of Portland." Sure, Ooh. but we didn't <laughs> because yeah, you know, we got people saying equity policy over here and people issuing permits over here, and they does, don't talk to each other. Uh, so, and, yeah. and, and in that talking, does that now feel like it's sort of a missed opportunity to those persons who issued, or is it still? I don't sort know if of... it feels like missed opportunity to them. It feels like missed opportunity to me. Okay, yeah, it, I mean, yeah, obviously, one, one's perspective on, but it's just interesting in terms of you know, all of these moving parts, like what, what pieces mm-hmm. stick, what pieces get sort of left right. off to the side and, and sort of how like, uh, you know, ghosts in the night or something passing. Right. Well, that's a great segue to the next point I want to bring up, which is data sharing. Okay. Now we'd love to know we could, you know, the planners and the regulators could get huge benefit from knowing where these vehicles are being used, how they're being used. Uh, and, yeah, at least Uber and Lyft so far have been very guarded about that data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, one thing we can do is build in requirements that they have to share data. I think, you know, the classic example of this is regulating Airbnb, right? So, mm. you know, we let Airbnb operate in Portland and we said, well, you know, you can only rent out rooms that are in houses that people live in. So you can't have, you can't own three apartments or rent them You can't essentially have an underground hotel. Right. Yeah. But people do it anyway. <laughs> and, you know, and we cut the deal with Airbnb and they said, hey, we'll collect the lodging taxes for you and write a check right to the city of Portland. You don't have to deal with 50,000 Airbnb operators. We'll just give you one check. Hmm. Well, that's great, except we don't know who the hosts are, so we don't know which ones are breaking the law. Uh, Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So that, that enforceability component still has to Depends on the on data. Okay. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's important that we negotiate the data up front. So that's a big policy. Do you, um, do you think that that's a shift like as big data becomes more important and we're interacting more in, in sort of a global sphere that that is more on the roadmap of city planners or cities in general? I think they're beginning to think about it. a lot of cities now have open data policies. So where government is generating data, uh, we're sharing it with the private sector, the public, so people can figure out how to get value out of that. Okay. Um, you know, the classic example of that is, you know, the TriMet arrival times and all the arrival screens. Uh, you know, TriMet made that publicly available and you have 50 apps in the app store that will oh, help yeah. you use it in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the beneficial side. I mean, and the data sharing goes both ways because, I mean, we have data that is valuable to the AV companies. You know, there's already an app built into the dashboard of some cars that will tell you when the red light you're at is going to change to green. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And we, we had a little fight about that with, with some of the, uh, the, there are two major data companies that are kind of brokering that data to the, the automobile manufacturers. And, you know, if you think about it, if you misuse that, it's a countdown timer to when you hit the gas pedal, right? right. Yep. And maybe you're not necessarily paying as much attention instance. to yeah. the street yeah. in front of you as you are <laughs> to the countdown timer. Right. Uh, you know, so it basically got negotiated. Well, if you're going to do that, we're going to stop giving you the data because that comes off our traffic signal system. Interesting. Um, oh. that- and, and they basically stop at, five seconds and ring a bell. So it's like, mm-hmm. okay, stop texting now and pay attention. Cause the yeah, not to yeah. change. <laughs> but you don't have that, you know, this is the time to hit the accelerator. That's interesting. Cause I, I have seen examples of cities that have just kind of embraced that. And that was um, one of the things that really surprised me about Acuri when I was in Iceland is that they give you a yellow before the green. And uh-huh. so when you roll, it sort of says, Oh, get ready. And then mm-hmm. you're, you're set. So it does in a sense, sort of smooth that, that easement through mm-hmm. the city. Um, but then again, it's all, everybody in the city is receiving that data at the same right. time. So it's not necessarily like one driver because they have an app would have an edge over anybody right. else. Right. But I don't think we should be afraid to say, sure, you can have that data and we want some data to exchange. Right. Right. Uh, it should be a two way street. And, you know, speaking of signals, you guys should have Peter Kuntz on sometime. <laughs> take everything yeah. you need to know about traffic signals in the city of Portland. I think we had him on just oh, about a year and oh, a half, two oh, years ago. That. Okay. Yeah. He, he'd be due for I a mean, return. I was going to say, he can always <laughs> come back. <laughs> On a on a yeah. tour today, I was uh, letting I was we were crossing through the uh, what was it like twelfth and uh, over the over the freeway there, and I was saying, yeah, this this intersection was helped out by Peter, you know, oh, kind of yeah. throwing some local transit into the mix there. So no, it'd be great to have Peter back on. Yeah, every time I see one of the signal heads where the little blue light goes on to tell me that I've been detected mm-hmm. in the loop, I think oh, Peter's got me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other big policies in there is basically says, yeah, you know, we're going to make this work with our Vision Zero principles so mm-hmm. you know the avs have to fit into our safety scheme and be part of reducing or eliminating you know fatalities and serious injuries so uh, i think i'm happy that portland at least has a set of goals that are aligned with the rest of our city objectives to govern these things now the process of making them really fit it's going to take some work um city's got an interesting project underway called um savvy and i forget what it means something automated vehicle initiative but it's basically you bureaucracies and your yeah, acronyms, yeah. man. It's, it's an <laughs> initiative to basically uh, try and engage with the AV companies, and they've basically offered up PIR as a test environment. What's so, a PIR? That's the racetrack that the Parks oh, Department okay. owns. Oh, out. Just yeah. We're, yeah. we're throwing acronyms super around, so just trying <laughs> yeah. to we'll, we'll help Portland our International Raceway, I think, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the city owns a racetrack, so come test your AVs on our racetrack. Okay. Um, I don't think anybody's taken them up on that yet, but at least they're, you know, they did a request for information process, and they're trying to engage the companies, so it's mm-hmm. not like we're just going to drop a bunch of regulation on you. We want to build a relationship and talk with you, so has I'm, the I'm response, encouraged by that. Has the response been lukewarm receptive uh i excited? think they've gotten some interest i don't think it's generating any projects yet but okay at least they're opening up lines of communication in terms of the city so um talking a little bit about the sort of 20 minute community concept mm-hmm. and in, in addition to vision zero do you feel like those goals have sort of the teeth in them that would allow portland to really control how it allows av to come in um <clears throat> Yeah, I think the policy framework is strong. Uh, I think, you know, it's always a test of political will when it's time to make the actual regulation. Sure. Uh, whether you'll, you know, you'll listen to the, the right people or, or be influenced by the power structures, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's a classic problem we face. So um, I'm reasonably optimistic we've got a good policy framework in place that our elected officials can use if they've got the political spine for it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so how that will play out, we'll have to see. 
And then in terms of the the overall picture, like what would a successful implementation, assuming that, you know, things do go as planned, what would a successful implementation look like to you? Uh, I think it would be, again, the shared automated fleet that uh, would be structured such that it will uh, attempt to pick up multiple passengers on a given trip so that we're getting two or three people to a vehicle. We don't have a lot of those zero occupancy miles that the pricing structures have some equity factor. So low income people may get a discount. Um, you know, that would avoid the need for a lot of parking. So we'd free up a lot of curbside space. A lot of parking garages could get turned into housing. Uh, you know, that's the most optimistic scenario. I think one factor we have to touch on is what does this do to transit? Because if the I was cost of say, driving so drops. We've, we've talked about the optimistic scenario. Right. What about the sort of yeah. less optimistic so if scenario? the cost of driving drops, it's going to compete more heavily with transit, right? right. So how do we make transit competitive in this environment. And you know, one answer is, well, let's automate the buses. Now, I know we have a professional <laughs> bus driver here in the room uh, who, who's a union member, and I'm actually, as a member of Streetcar Board, I'm probably management for that union. <laughs> right. but, but let's try and keep it cordial. <laughs> uh, so, I, think, I know, think we're all in good company here. I, so, for one, embrace our robot overlords. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, you know, biggest single part of TriMet's budget is labor, right? So, yeah. if you can automate out drivers, um, you can deliver transit trips for less money. Now, is that a good thing? Is there an opportunity for different jobs? You know, if if you don't need the driver, could you turn all the drivers into conductors and maybe work on regulating some of the, the behavior in the back of the bus that's problematic, mm. uh, make people feel more comfortable? Is there a different way to deploy those resources? A lot of interesting questions we're going to have to answer there. We, we should have um, caricature robots that have a finger that just points at people and says, Hey, knock it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure we will have lots of discussions around that. I um, would, I am interested what drivers might, might think of this. I mean, obviously like no one wants to lose their job. And so I doubt like there would be very many positive, um, outlooks on this as far as like from the driver's mm-hmm. perspective. But in the meantime, like it does automation, and we've talked about this already. Automation is kind of an inevitability, uh, whether it's personal vehicle, whether it's transit or, or what, it's going to happen. And I think on some level, it will replace transit drivers. If if not automating transit, it would at least reduce the number of necessary transit trips by increasing the demand for you know, single occupancy or, hmm. or yeah, whatever, however, right. that's not that. good for the transportation system overall. No. I mean, we know that uh, we're, we're basically running out of room on our streets. And the only way to keep growing the economy and the population in that environment is to get more people into a vehicle or onto smaller vehicles like bicycles or scooters. Um, so, you know, we want transit to stay competitive. I mean, it, it may be that some of the less productive routes, you know, that in any transit system, you've got routes that are about, moving a lot of people, you have other routes are just about making sure there's coverage everywhere, right? So right. Uh, even people who don't live you know, on sort of the major routes still have a way to, to get places without having a car. It's less about frequency than it is about accessibility. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. It might actually make sense for the transit agencies to you know, pay the AV companies to transport some of those people who are in inefficient locations, right? It may work out you know, less expensive and, and more accessible to provide that than to run a bus in some of those routes. So I would expect we'll see the route system change somewhat as automation comes in and there'll be different 
and new partnerships will get formed. But, you know, I certainly hope that the frequent transit system, the, you know, the high capacity system, max streetcar, uh, will continue to have lots of ridership because, uh, if they don't, our transportation system just isn't going to work. No, it'll uh, and collapse if, eventually. Right. And yeah. if, you know, automating can, you know, help that economically, I think probably the, the fixed route stuff, the, you know, it's easier to imagine automating a max car where you don't have to steer than it is a bus where you have to worry about obstacles and whatnot. But the technology will eventually get to cover all those situations, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about personal and private trips. We've talked about transit. Another road use we haven't really talked about in the form of or in the realm of automation is um, shipping. Moving stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, there are a number of places where that may come into play at the, um, at sort of the high level. Uh, freight movement can probably get a lot more efficient. Um, you're already seeing tests in Europe and I think some of the US of, basically convoys of trucks where maybe the lead truck has a human driver, but the subsequent trucks basically just follow it. Interesting. Um, and I like this idea better than the multiple trailers hooked <laughs> onto one, which mm-hmm. you, yes, you see, right? triple trailers are scary. Place, yes. right. um, and, you know, advantage of that is that because the reaction time for the automated system is so much faster, you know, you can platoon the second truck, you know, a few feet away from the first truck. You don't have to allow 40 or 50 feet for something weird to happen and somebody to have time to react, right? Mm. So the platooning can make the use of the roadway a lot more efficient. That'll eventually happen with cars as well. But, um, you know, it only takes a few human drivers to get in the middle to disrupt all the benefits from that. So until we get to an 80, 90% autonomous fleet, um, that benefit's probably going to be somewhat limited. Mm-hmm. But in, you know, long-haul trucking, you can probably get that benefit sooner, Um and I think the other the other interesting place, and I've been to some conferences where they've shown some really far out things, is the last mile delivery, right? So yep. the how does that Amazon package get to your porch? Yeah. And, you know, uh, everybody's heard about you know Amazon's research into drones. What you may not have heard about is the drone carrier, which is basically a truck that is a platform for a bunch of drones. And the truck drives around through your like neighborhood. Just deploys. And the drones <laughs> wow. fly off and deliver the package. I love it. Wow. Yes. Yeah. There, there are also already robots that will basically, uh, you know, run down the sidewalk in an urban setting and deliver something to your building. I mean, so, I, I've seen those demoed at conferences. Oh, really? So, so yeah. what yeah. you're saying is if, if, if we were one to start to build a doomsday bunker, we're a couple years behind. <laughs> <laughs> you're too late already. It's already, yes. it's already here. <laughs> it's coming. It's already happened. Yep. So is the city also looking at legislation or, or, or sort of looking forward? Obviously, you can't speak for the city, but mm-hmm. in your impression, is that something that's on the radar in terms of Portland or, or the, a city of our size? Yeah, I was on uh, a task force a few years ago that looked at uh, the idea of sustainable freight. So how do we make the goods movement in the city, particularly in the inner city, um, more efficient and sustainable? And a lot of the discussion at that time was uh, around delivering off hours. So you know, if you can deliver to the, you know, the restaurant at 4 a.m. in the morning when nobody's trying to commute to work or, you know, restock the office depot, um, that has a lot of benefit. That has cost because you have to have employees around to offload mm-hmm. that stuff. Okay. Um, if you, you know, the, the biggest part of that equation is, again, the driver is the cost. So if you start mm-hmm. to automate that, you change some of those logistics and probably you, you may get to smaller vehicles because the 
the temptation, you know, if, if the driver's the cost, the temptation is to move as much stuff on that driver as you can. So oh, yeah. you try and fill up a big truck. And then it becomes, you know, how many deliveries can you make in a day? It's the triple trailers. Right. One driver, right. three, yeah. Right. But different from an, realms. Yeah, but. from an urban realm point of view, it would be great to see a lot of smaller vehicles rather than big vehicles because big vehicles, you know, have lots of negative impact on mm-hmm. our streets. Uh, so hopefully, you know, that could introduce some efficiencies for small vehicles. Um, yeah. Do you, do you think there's, so what I, what, what I think about, I, I guess, is like the social component of automation and or there automation. is none it's, well, it's automated is, it's well, automated now so we don't so have for, to be social anymore it's true <laughs> but i'm wondering like is that the best call like for example you were talking about like you, the the opportunity cost of waiting behind a bridge if you're in an autonomous vehicle like do we have like kind of a social responsibility to ourselves to mm-hmm. leave inroads to socialization if you will at the advent of the automated age uh it, you know because it feels like great you can watch netflix that's that's all swell and dandy but if we lose our ability or if we diminish our ability to connect it feels as though even the social consequence might be more than we could than we could fathom at this Mm -hmm. point yeah i think that's true it's going to change how people interact in in ways um we probably can't predict at this point there's also just the economic issue if you automate enough jobs away that there aren't jobs for everybody who wants one which you know, we're sort of in that position now at least people mm. are underemployed um yeah it, how does that just work is is this just one more force that's concentrating wealth right yeah. Yeah. um and people begun to talk about concepts like universal basic income as a way to overcome that and uh, you know maybe unlock people's potential in different ways uh it's i'm sure those conversations are going to have to continue and get more serious um I just picture myself like, would I want to watch Netflix or would I want to talk to somebody or (laughs) something like that? Yeah, I just feel like... uh, Yeah, well, your phone's already driven that conversation. It's true. It's very true. It's it's funny. Like, if you try to go, I don't know, like, if, if, if you are a user of a smartphone, try to go like three days without actually looking at it. I've, I've, I've tried to make a habit now of, you know, if you're grocery shopping or such or in something, let's say you're like looking at a list or talking to somebody else, like... Just leaving the phone at home. Ooh. Oh, I panic when I do that. I know. And, <laughs> I, and I, I do too. But also at the same time, I remember like 18 year old me chucking my dumb phone out into the middle of a field being like, fuck this. I'm never going to like, <laughs> you know, I'm never like, going to yeah. let you be the boss of me. And then like, look at, look at the smartphone user here circa 2018. I mean, we, we, we change as a society or, or we accept certain things as, sure. as inevitable. But, um, it, it, I think my biggest concern is that we'll lose touch with some of that humanity through the process and and sure that's the big point, picture like but maybe you, we could have you, our cake <laughs> i don't know yeah big picture like the loss of that social aspect also could can mean the loss of the empathy aspect mm. and you know how that would shape sort of even bigger this is this is maybe a little farther afield, but like even even bigger issues, you know, like on the national level, on on trade and even like you know international uh, goodwill mm-hmm. with each other. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like half of me, and this is the the incredibly optimistic half, wants to sure. think that with all that free time, maybe would finally have a chance to sit down and talk about some issues. But <laughs> yeah, the other half of me says, well, that probably will. Uh, 
be maybe spent on Netflix. Yeah, the oh, pessimistic from here. <laughs> <laughs> the pessimistic side of me says like we could have already done that. Yeah, we've had like, that time already that right now. <laughs> Well, that, that's why we have our, our glorious listeners of the Sprocket Podcast talking, yes. about, talking about the concepts there. Email at thesprocketpodcast the at gmail.com. Call or text 503-847-9774. So, so, Chris, lay out the roadmap for us. What, what are the next you know, four-ish, five-ish years going to look like in your impression in terms of uh, AV and then also just autonomous in general coming into Portland? Uh you know, it, it will feel incremental as it happens, and then we'll look back 10 years in the future and say, oh, my God, look at everything that's changed. Um, so I think, you know, from my vantage point as sort of a junior varsity city policymaker, um, you know, we need we need to pay attention to what's happening in the industry because it will be industry-driven, and we will be somewhat reactive, but try and stay as far out ahead as we can to watch what's happening here and in other cities and and build regulation that's going to make sense um so it's it's just constant vigilance <laughs> <laughs> the good old mad eye moody right <laughs> you bet well chris thank you so much for well, joining thank you. us it's been a pleasure to have you this evening i enjoyed it greatly would you like to stick around for our news and headlines i wouldn't miss it awesome Alrighty. well before all that we have I love, I love, I love, I love. don't don't ever use that the second Thursday of every month. Don't worry, Tim. We'll use it every week. The Joyful Riders Club in Minneapolis. The second Friday of every month, the Boston Bike Party. Also the second Friday of every month, the Indianapolis Bike Party. Also also the second Friday of every month, the East Bay Bike Party. And that came to us this week from listener Heather in Oakland. And I'm sure you could probably guess what the East Bay Bike Party is, but just in case... A little explanation is a mobile party for riders of all ages, experience levels, and types to meet, ride, and play together in the streets. I'm wondering, so there was a contingent out of San Francisco that came up to Portland like three years ago for Palooza, and I think it was called like Bay Moon Rising or such, I, I, and I... I'm just curious if that is related to or or sort of a morph of that but came from or something. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, those were those. That was a fun crew that came up to visit. So it, it was very pleasing to have like love from San Francisco coming and participating in Pedal Palooza for that time. So if not, maybe I'm off on a limb. But um, either way, love to have uh, East Bay Bike Party on the calendar. Yeah, the last Friday of every month is the Baltimore Bike Party. Second Friday. Oh, sorry. Every second Sunday of every month here in Portland is the Corvidai Bike Club Ride, which I missed again. No! Caca. It was just, yeah, yeah. Sad crow. Caca. <laughs> it was just yesterday. Well, well you but know. But it what? was miserable and rainy, so I took that as an excuse to not ride. Aaron, take faith. You know what's going to happen the second Sunday of every month? Of every month. Every month. Here in PDX. It's the, coming back around. The Corvidai Bike Club ride. <laughs> June 13th, Burial Bear Company. Yep. Burial Beer Company, Night at the Beer Mongers, our generous sponsor of beverages. June 15th, The Guthrie Ride. Come and join. Or don't. Either way, lovely to see you. Who the heck is Guthrie anyway? Who the heck? Who said that? Wait, what was that? Huh? <laughs> that was uh, Listener Marshall. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Uh, June 16th, the Ravello 3rd Anniversary Ride. Wing Dang, Barbecue, Beverages, Deets to Follow. 
June 23rd, The Petal Petal. By the way, Ravello has Instagrammed uh, some details. So oh, okay. go take a look at Ravello's Instagram. Instagrams to follow. Uh, for the Petal Petal ride, you can also use the code SPROCKET18 to receive $5 off your entry. June 30th through July 1st, Ride High Five's Show and Tell Bike Party. And August 19th, the Portland Century. September 2nd, the Tour de Lab. Where you can also use code SPROCKET18. And September 8th through 9th, the Bike MS150. September 22nd, the Lowell Kinetic Sculpture Race in Lowell, Massachusetts. And upcoming Film by Bike tour dates, Albany, New York, July 22nd, Seattle and Vancouver, Washington, to be announced, Arcata, California, November of 2018, and if you happen to be way down south, Bendigo, Australia, October of 2018. Yeah! And now for... What can compare with the thrill of a brand new bike? I like my bike, it's fast. I like my bike, it's fast. I like my bike, it's fast. It circles around the city lights. Pedal just as fast as you can into the morning light. Pedal just as fast as you can into the day. From MassBike.org, MassBike names Galen Mook as the new executive director. And yes. listeners to the show will will possibly remember that on episode 374, the Sprocket featured Galen here in the studio. Yeah, he came up uh, from Boston, It was, and we had him in, and it was a great time. Uh, the Mass Bike Board of Directors has named well-respected community advocate Galen Mook as the organization's new executive director. Mook will take over the helm of the statewide advocacy organization in July as Massachusetts is seeing an explosion in growth of the number of people biking for fun, exercise, community, commuting, and competition. Maybe a seedling for some Boston Palooza coming up here? Yeah. From streetbooks.org, streetbooks, year number eight on the streets. Yes, and streetbooks was featured way, way back. Oh, wow. We should definitely episode have them back 44, on the show. <laughs> episode 44, Laura Moulton, possibly my first interview. Oh, really? Possibly. Wow. Yes. It was when I was sitting in uh, for Brandon, who was out that week. Okay. There's also a, a um, really great video on Vimeo about street books. Oh, really? That I happened to come across while looking for films. Oops, excuse me. For filmed by bike, so uh, didn't get into the festival or wasn't submitted, I should say. But a pleasure to watch and a really neat organization. Really, really appreciate what they do. Street books. Should we read the read the the full the full reel here? Sure. Street books has the official ribbon cutting ceremony today, June fourth, on Burnside to launch their eighth season on the streets. Thanks to Pepe and Patty for the enormous homemade scissors. Ben and Olive are working on their Monday shift in Old Town, and they pushed off shortly after our ceremony to start checking out books to people. Want to help books to people living outside or on the margins of Portland? Consider donating books or email us to arrange a visit to a library. Librarian at streetbooks.org. Yay! So I have a piece of news that I don't think the Sprocket has covered yet. This is oh, let's do it. Only slightly self-congratulatory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on, on May 24th at 1 p.m., not that anybody was counting down or anything, uh, <laughs> Portland's new comprehensive plan became effective. Oh, yeah. Yes. And, That's right. And buried in the thousands of pages of new code in the comp plan is a provision that says that if your business uh, is only accessible via a drive-thru, if you don't have a front door open, 
you cannot deny access to somebody who may not happen to have a motor vehicle yes! with them. Nice. So a pedestrian or a cyclist, if that's the only way to access the business, is welcome to use the drive-thru. Well, you know, I've been saving all of those trips to McDonald's up these past 28 years, and I, I, think, I, I think I know what I'm going to do after the show here. You're going to walk, at, walk at like through the drive-thru? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Also, um, yeah, really big news for, for Portland. I'm surprised. Yeah, we haven't really covered that too much on the show. No, I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> if someone denies you access, file a zoning complaint. Alrighty, I'll I'll put your number on speed dial. <laughs> well, we may not have access only by drive-through to our studio because we got a door. <laughs> but do but, you know what we do have? We got mail. From Ranger Tom, while at work today, I overheard an officer dispatched to a call on Washington State Route 14. A motorist called 911 to complain of, quote, 20 bicycles in the traffic lane. Boo! I like how they called it a traffic lane. Uh, The officer responded to his dispatcher that he would contact the motorist by phone and advise them that that was a legal use of the road. Be safe. We have your back. Thank you. Yeah. Love to hear that. It's always, it's always, you know, some of my favorite just kind of, you know, hey, by the way, this is cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we got a couple of voicemails coming up. This one here is from Sean. And if you recall way, way back in the way back, uh, Sean had written in about a semi-cross country trip he did with his wife and some friends. Okay. And met a listener along the way listener of the sprocket who uh ended up letting them use their backyard to tent in and nice. uh you know gave them much hospitality mm-hmm. uh and so this is somewhat in reference to that Are you? all right so uh this is just i'm gonna send this to the we're gonna put this in the show so what was the listener's name uh scott scott in missouri uh illinois excuse me scott in illinois <laughs> scott i just got the beer that you told sean to get me so thank you very much. Uh, after an incredible day of pain for you back then, although we just had an incredible day of pain now, uh, you uh, you experienced his hospitality, and this guy deserves another shout-out on the show. Thanks for the beers and the, the backyard to camp in, Scott, and the coffee in the morning. Absolutely, and thank you for my beer today. There we go. Oh, and Ranger Tom's here. Hi, Ranger Tom. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> also worth mentioning that was after the Alameda or the Mount Tabor stair carry. So we might have been a little slap happy. <laughs> um, and speaking of the Mount Tabor stair carry, here is one of the winners. Down here with Brock Dittis. Hey. Finished the, uh, the Mount Tabor stair climb. We've got a good group of guys here. We've got uh, Josh, Josh Rapper over here and uh, Evan over there. Tied Evan first. And, uh, and yeah. Uh, Loads of fucking fun. Brock organized. And Major fucking Tom. Yeah, super sweet race. Organized really well. Cryotic as fuck. Just right, yeah. Yeah. And you won a pan. And I won a fucking frying pan. There we go. Congratulations. I won me a 10-inch skillet today. And a nice cold rain here. 
We we should get him on the show because I think that's more f bombs than we've had in like the <laughs> in last a while. year. <laughs> yeah, we've been slacking. Thanks we for have. making up for that, Seven. Yeah, I feel like we're evening out there. <laughs> uh, and lastly, our last piece of mail here is a uh, kind of call to action slash invitation mm-hmm. from our friend Fool, who was on the show last week. Hello, Portland Bike Funnest. Uh, my name is Fool, and I want to tell you about the upcoming Solstice Ride. We ride all night for the shortest night of the year. That is sundown to sunup, and boy, do we have fun. This is probably the 15th or 16th annual, and it'll be my fifth ride led. We're starting at People's Co-op at sundown. So, uh, you know, if you look on the Google, it'll tell you nine-ish. Uh, People's Co-op on the night of the 20th. Bring a bike with gears. Bring some warmth. We will be out all night. The ride will be around 30 miles. It is not a loop, and we'll have a lot of fun and show you some places you haven't been before. Hope to see you on the streets. <laughs> so the Solstice Ride 2, I have to say, of all Pedal Palooza events, yes. is one that is kind of held up to this... Well, it, it's one of those rides that, because I work that day, typically, like I've never been able to go on. Okay. But... Every single person I've ever talked to about that just loves it. Like absolute gushes it's, over that ride. I've only done it once. I've attempted it three times. First time I, I attempted it, I, I completed it. Second time I flatted and just it took me forever. I ended up uh, actually taking a car to go home. Mm. At least <laughs> you were close. To, you must not have been east of 82nd. No, I. Well, we were... Where were we? We were up north, and okay. I ended up walking a few blocks to get into the, the territory. Gotcha. Um, but it was just taking me forever, and I patched it, and then the patch didn't hold, and so I just gave up. Uh, third time, I was there for sunset, and then decided, uh, because my lady didn't want to do it, and we originally were just going go to go to the sunset, and then our separate ways, and I just couldn't bear to leave her hmm. that's okay <laughs> i think that's a good call uh but i will say the first time i when we did it and i will probably still like ride for a little while every year since then it's just yeah it's on par with like i don't know a some kind of like spiritual experience for lack of any kind of better term mm-hmm. uh yeah it's amazing Riding all night, and then you watch the sunrise from somewhere usually up in elevation, so you can see it like over everything. Mm. Check it out. So yeah, if you if you think you can make it, if you have the time, if you, you can know, make the do time, do it. Do it. Yeah, I highly recommend it. Indeed. Thanks for yeah. calling in, fool, and yeah. uh, plugging that ride. Have you Have you done the solstice? I have not. I'm no. have to try that sometime. It's, yeah, I highly suggest. And also, just a reminder to our listeners, we are still collecting your rides, and we would love to tell people about them. Yeah. But in order to do so, you have to call us or text us at 503-847-9774. We would love to share your event as it happens throughout the month of June. And also, if you've got a story of touring on the road and meeting somebody special similar to Brock's story and a beer all the way from the Midwest, let us know your story and we will be sharing them on our upcoming episode with Annalisa and Eric, part of a a special uh, Stories of the Road series. Yeah. 
Well, lastly, before we leave, real quick, pedal palooza ride you're going to do next. I'm going to do the Tuesday Biking to Taverns Tuesday night ride. Oh, okay. That's tomorrow, I guess. That it is. And it's also the tomorrow after that, too, if you happen to miss it. (laughs) Right on. Chris? I have to look at my calendar. I have a couple circled, but I don't remember which one's up next. Ah, just just name one that you're going to do. Then. Uh, we won't hold you to it. <laughs> right. It's not, it's not like I'm going to check up on you. I'll, I'll talk about the one I just did, which was the, oh, the yeah. Cully Farm Tour, mm-hmm. which was a lot of fun, even though it was pretty drizzly that morning, Sunday morning. People growing stuff yeah. out in All kinds of vegetables. the neighborhood of Cully. In our yeah. city. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Urban agriculture. Go. Indeed. Um. Next one I'm most likely to do. I'd like to hit the Tuesday night ride tomorrow mm-hmm. or the Tuesday night adventure. Uh, but more likely I will hit the David Lynch ride on Wednesday. And I'm not sure what I'm going to dress as yet. Dress got as some the ideas. severed hand. <laughs> or an ear. <laughs> or an ear. <laughs> yeah. Severed ear. Hey, what's up, Armando? <laughs> <laughs> well, you've made it to the end of yet another episode. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Yes. Ready? Let's do it. The Sprocket Podcast is produced at Stream PDX Community Audio Studio. Thanks to generous support of Open Signal. Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Funk call or text 503-847-9774. Twitter and Instagram at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music. Hurtbird for our headline sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. Thanks to sustaining donors Logan Smith, Shadowfoot, Katharina Melongard. Wayne Norman, Doug Robertson, Ethan Georgie. Justin Martin, Eric Iverson, Cameron Lane. Richard Wazinski, Tim Mooney, Glenn Kubish. Matt Kelly, Eric Wise, Todd Parker. Dan Gebhardt, who's, who's a, a time, time traveler. traveler. Dave knows Chris Smith. Who's right here? What? <laughs> He's in the studio. Christy Kaster, Caleb Jenkinson, JP Cooley. Peanut Butter Jar Matt, Marco Lowe, Rich Artistrom. Andrew in Colorado, Drew the Welder, Anna, I'll be home soon. John Wasserman, Andre Johnson King of Division. Josh Zissen, Richard G. Guthrie Straw, who's sitting across from me today. Hey, we're two for three. Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons and founder of The Regranary. Campsite Mac Nurse David, Nathan Poulton. Chris Rawson, Rory in Michigan, Michael Florney. Jeremy Kitchen, David Belay, Tim Coleman. Mr. T, Harry Hugel, E.J. Finneran. Brad Hipwell, Thomas Skato, Keith Hutchinson. Ranger Tom, Joyce Wilson, Ryan Tam. Derek Wagner, Jason Offenberg, Microcosm Publishing. David Moore, Todd Grosbeck. Chris Barron. Chris Barron. Chris Barron. Sean Baird. Simon Gregory Braithwaite <laughs> Ryan Morrow Jimmy Diesel Dude Luna Matthew Ricks And Marshall And all of our former donors who helped us get this far Now brush your teeth And go to bed
Oh, I was oh. figuring we could oh, just okay. roll with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. The test came out so well. I was like, we're, they sound good to me. All right, let's give it, let's give it one more try. False. You know, you always get, you always have to have a mulligan. Otherwise, that's, yeah. Otherwise yeah. you're bound to mulligan in, inevitably. Good point. We can't, we can't do this too smoothly. Otherwise it wouldn't be the sprocket. That's right. Okay.